I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we get to finally dive into a subject that we've wanted to talk about for a long time because it's getting pretty popular in the pre-hospital and the emergency department setting, and that is ultrasound. So we wanted to dive into ultrasound and talk about the anatomy of ultrasound, essentially, and we couldn't think of anybody better than an expert cardiographer of 40 years named Paul Brom. Paul has over 40 years in cardiovascular imaging, including multiple publications in peer-reviewed journals and co-author of a textbook chapter on ultrasound contrast agents. Paul also serves on several committees in the American Society of Echocardiography, as well as serving as a bureau speaker for multiple medical companies. Yeah, Paul is uh, not only uh, an outstanding guy with a lot of experience, but he uh, really did it right. Paul received uh, his AS degree in cardiovascular technology from Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida, and his bachelor's of science degree in health administration and pre-medical sciences from the University of Pittsburgh. So not only has Paul been doing this a really long time, he is a really great guy and actually one of the best educators I think that I have heard. He, he takes really complex things and breaks them down into uh, ways that a lot of people can understand it. And let's be honest, if we're going to be using ultrasound, um, you know, we don't, ha- all of us don't really necessarily have the time to go back to school to learn it uh, as in depth as maybe we would like to. Um, so I think uh, you're going to be pleased by with what you hear from Paul. Uh, and uh, really how he breaks it down and it really makes it uh, knowable and really becomes a viable option for us uh, in the pre-hospital realm uh, as well as the emergency department. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Let's listen to what Paul has to say. Well, Paul, thank you again so much for coming. Um, this is this is going to be a really, really interesting topic that we've talked about several times on the podcast, and we've wanted to get an expert here, and here you are. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. I appreciate the invite. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Where'd you come from? How'd you get to where you are? Where'd you train? Well, most people can tell I'm not from Georgia with this accent, right? I speak around the country and they introduce me from Atlanta and everybody's like, so where's the Southern accent? I'm I'm originally from Pittsburgh. It was actually... Hmm. A, a small town just south of Pittsburgh called McKeesport, Pennsylvania, born and raised. But um, there's a sort of a small, interesting story to go with this. Um, my father actually died of coronary artery disease at the age of 57, and mm-hmm. I was only 14. Um, and, you know, we're going back to the late 60s, early 70s. His cardiologist, I never forgot him, was the nicest man in the world. He just took an interest to me. And while my father was alive, he would, I would go to visits with him at the cardiologist and he'd show me EKGs and stuff. But um, after my father died, the guy actually kept in touch, kept in touch with my family, my mother. And he took me into the cath lab when I was about a junior in high school, mm. just so I could watch a case. 
he found a cardiovascular technology training program in Gainesville, Florida, and actually told my mother about it, who promptly put me on an airplane, flew me to Gainesville, Florida, registered me, took me down there three days after high school graduation, told me I wasn't coming home till I was done. <laughs> so tough life. You know what? I, I admire the lady now, uh, thinking back on that, that was a tough thing for her to do, but, um, is probably the best thing, the best thing that ever happened in my life career wise, because I had no idea I was going to end up in a profession that 40 some years later, I still absolutely love. Mm. Um, I'm consumed by it. I spent, um, after graduation, I worked in the cath lab for a good four or five years at the University of Florida doing some of the initial stuff on uh, thromba, thrombolytics and um, scrubbed in. This is my little small claim to fame. They flew Andreas Grunzik down to Gainesville to do one of the first angioplasties in the state of Florida. So I got the scrub in on the case. I was thrilled. Wow. Idea what that would mean later in life. But um, one day... Um, when I was in the cath lab, they told us to go up to the cardiology offices on the fourth floor. And I had had some echo training in school. You have to probably realize that echo was very um, archaic at the time. They showed me this machine that looked like the size of an old frigid air. Oh, my gosh. They put this wand on somebody's chest and I saw the heart moving. I saw valves and I was like, oh, wow. So I was really intrigued. And about a year after that, I went on to the um, University of Pittsburgh and started doing pediatric echocardiography at the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Mm. Well, I was always pretty lucky. I was in academic settings. Um, so I was around research and cutting edge stuff. When I was in Pittsburgh, we did the first liver transplants. We did pediatric heart transplants. So I've seen a lot throughout that. But um, that's always kept my fascination. And I joke about it, but it's true. You know, the first ultrasound really kind of developed from the 40s. Sonar in submarines in World War II was really the first advent of the use of ultrasound. And the theory behind if you send a sound wave out and it strikes a solid target, much like if you yell in the Grand Canyon, the sound waves will come back at you. So they developed some pretty primitive ultrasound machines and the beginning of echocardiography was actually in Indiana. There was a gentleman named uh, Dr. Harvey Fagenbaum who met some structural engineer. And I don't even know where he met him, but he was talking about the use of ultrasound examining metal. And so Dr. Fagenbaum actually took this, asked if he could borrow the machine, took it to the hospital and started playing with it and noticed that um, there was an echo-free space around this moving target on his ultrasound exam, which probably looked nothing like a heart at the time. And he realized that was a pericardial effusion. Wow. That was really the first time that ultrasound was used in medicine. It dates back to the 60s. But um, where we've gotten to now, okay, we've come a long way from refrigerator-sized machines. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> You know, as a matter of fact, we'll get to it, but we were just saying before we got officially started POCUS, I mean, they sell transducers you can plug into an iPhone or an Android and get ultrasound pictures. So 
imagine where we've come. And I really think to me, the biggest uh, progression in ultrasound imaging came with the advent of computers. As computer technology got better and chips got smaller, the uh, processing power just grew exponentially, which really enabled us to start seeing the heart better and better um, to the point that we actually have that we actually have um, three-dimensional ultrasound now. And so the first, um, I'm trying to think, the first three-dimensional ultrasound, I, this is, I tell people this tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. I saw the first 3D ultrasound in 1979. Wow. We fed some points of measurement into a computer. It was put into a database. And six weeks later, we got a picture of what the left ventricle looked like in 3D. Six weeks later? <laughs> yeah, six weeks. <laughs> I mean, remember, computers were the size of my house back then. Yeah. So it was pretty fascinating. But now we just simply push a button. We have instantaneous on the fly, live three-dimensional echo. And that's, that's all very strictly, I'm sure, due to the uh, power of computers. So what is, what is the thing, Paul, if you were to say, this is the thing that kind of uh, grips you most about ultrasound? Like, wh like, what is the cool stuff you get to do that uh, really becomes like the most important thing that you do with ultrasound? I think it's probably, it's not only the imaging and what we can see structurally, but it's the other things that have been added to ultrasound over the years, such as Doppler, color Doppler, um, strain imaging. We can actually look at the physiologic function of the heart now a lot closer um, and make determinations of things we never dreamed of. For instance, um, you know, we talk about heart failure with preserved EF or what we call HEFPEF. We would have never known that existed without the use of echocardiography because we now mm. see the diastolic function as much as we look at the systolic function. And um, with strain, we can even tell that there's damage to heart muscle even earlier now than what we had before. Mm. I think the biggest fascinating thing to me is how in-depth we can study the anatomy of the heart, but the physiology that goes with it. Um, and we're, we're in an age of doing aortic valve replacements on the tip of a catheter. We never realized that there was something called low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis before. We just figured if you a big gradient across the valve that we couldn't measure with echo, then you couldn't possibly have aortic stenosis. And obviously we were wrong. <laughs> That's why it's so uh, widely used. And there's an interesting statistic, but the vast majority of people with moderate or greater aortic stenosis don't even get treatment. Um, it's a very under-treated disease, and it's very common. And we clearly now believe that that's probably from the number of people out there that just don't have the basics that we always look for, like big gradients across the valve. Hmm. So you've walked us through essentially where where it started, like you said, the size of a frigid air, you know, these long wands, um, large machines, and essentially you've kind of given some hints to as where we are now, <clears throat> excuse me, now, Wh where are we now in reference to the size of these machines, the fidelity, you know, how, how the images are coming through. 
Um, as far as the fidelity, I got to tell you, what I started off with, they probably sell better products at the Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> um, I didn't even think about that. Like the fish finders? <laughs> yeah. Fish finders, yeah. It's like... Hold that to your chest. <laughs> they, they probably would have been phenomenal if I had them back in the 70s. But um, where we are now, you know, to sort of separate the two, point of point of care ultrasound um, is really a wonderful tool because there are a lot of things that you can teach the basics to people and they can pick up on certain things very quickly. But the actual diagnostic ultrasound, if this means much to people, I do um, obviously echocardiography and uh, vascular ultrasound. The average length of one of our studies is probably in the 80 to 100 live moving clips. So we're studying and looking at a lot of things. Um, the size of the machines has decreased significantly, but they're still, I wouldn't say they're large and cumbersome, but we've gone from a refrigerator maybe down to um, a generator. I have mm -hmm. one in the garage. I bought one for a pending snowstorm that never happened to January. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they're much lighter. They used to be eight, 900 pounds. They're probably down to the 200 pounds range, the large mm. diagnostic versions. They're certainly a lot more economic friendly because you can move them around and adjust them to the position that you're in. And of course, the image quality just keeps getting better and better by the day. Uh, so, Paul, you you obviously, you know, you teach this stuff um, and you go through a lot of really in-depth uh, kind of how ultrasound works. Walk us through a little bit, uh, kind of the down and dirty um, of the physics of how ultrasound actually works. Um, it's really not that difficult. I mean, we can make it much simpler. Um, it is sound, okay? And we call them echocardiograms because we're basically echoing a sound wave off of a structure. Like, like I said in the beginning, go into the Grand Canyon and yell, and that your sound of your voice travels across the canyon, hits a solid structure like a wall, and is reflected back to you. And that's actually what ultrasound is, is it's generating a sound wave, sending it through the tissues in the body. And every time it strikes a um, part of a tissue, and what, what generates our image that we can actually see, the different colors or various light shades of gray, is based on acoustic impedance. All tissue has a slightly different resistance. And every time it hits a tissue layer with a differing resistance, it sends a sound wave back. So the image is just basically generated by pulsing sound into the body and waiting for the sound to come back. And of course, the further it travels is our depth. So if it takes a long, longer time for a tissue for something to go down and come back, we know that came from a deeper level. So that's how the image is constructed, is time is depth. And the differing, and I mean minute differing acoustic impedances of all the different tissue act as reflectors and send it back. I think what's unique about the um, system most people don't realize is that an uh, ultrasound machine spends very little time making a sound wave. As a matter of fact, it's one one millionth of a second it pulls wow. the wave. It spends the remaining seconds just waiting for all these things to come back 
and strike. And it's the transducer that we can now plug in the phones or whatever has got a, uh, well, they, we used to call them crystals. Well, they are crystals now, but they used to be made of uh, ceramic. And it's a um, piezoelectric material that not only when it's vibrated can create a sound wave, but it can deform that whenever a wave comes back, it turns it into an electrical signal and then sends that back to the machine. And that's where all the signal processing goes. But um, a few basics of, of sound. Um, striking tissues of differing acoustic impedances will actually is what gives us our image. If it strikes a fluid medium, it does not send an echo back. So mm -hmm. that's what dark spaces. So if, for instance, look at the heart, we get a reflection from one of the walls and then it gets into a chamber and it becomes totally dark. And then you travel a little bit further in depth or in time and it strikes another target and it comes back. Um, our biggest enemy, this is funny because I do echo, right? Bone and air. And where do I, I have to look at an organ that sits behind lungs and ribs. <laughs> so that's why I look so good and I'm only like 29. But um, <laughs> yeah, he ever buys that. I try it though. But um, th those are really your two nemesis is um, any type of solid structure, really solid like bone, because it actually makes the sound travel too fast to generate a signal. And then the opposite occurs with air. When it gets into a pocket of air, um, it slows it down so significantly it doesn't have time to travel back. So if you put something over somebody that has, for instance, COPD, where their lungs are super inflated, it's like looking at fog. Oh, okay. And so it's the same physics, same technology, whether you're looking um, at a moving structure like the heart or a static structure like vasculature? Yes. Um, vasculature is for sure something that we use it. I, cause I also do peripheral vascular, same principles. If you strike a, um, target such as a blood vessel, you get a reflection back from the walls. When you get inside, you get no reflection back because it's fluid filled, but we can actually see in the vascular exams, we can see plaque. So we're able to actually see the, the plaque that causes some um, atherosclerotic disease. Now, is that shooting back as like a like a white color? How does that shoot back? It comes back as a um, lighter shade of gray. Um, and this is honestly probably where we learned a lot about other than postmortems, where we learned about a lot about atherosclerotic plaque. Um, in the early stages, it's really fibro fatty and fat has the same density as blood. So there are certain early plaques we cannot see. Mm at least with plain ultrasound, because it's got the same density as fluid around it. What we do there is we use color Doppler, which illuminates the blood flow through the vessel, and then we can see the reduction in the lumen as we go. And of course, as plaque ages, it mineralizes, and as the calcium becomes more attracted to that area, the plaque becomes more and more visible. Has the, how has the quality improved over the years as far as uh, false positives or false negatives mm. uh, with certain things like vasculature? Um, well, we learned early on to stop tracing plaque 
like uh, when we were initially, when we did carotids in the early NASA trials, we used to trace plaque. Like we would look at the vessel and we'd trace the outline of the vessel and trace the plaque and say, that's the reduction in lumen. If it took up half, then it was a 50% stenosis. But what we've since learned is to actually rely more on our spectral Doppler and our velocity shifts. Because we do know that it takes a 50% reduction in vessel diameter to actually increase the velocity, kind of like putting your thumb over a garden hose. You have to reduce it by a good 50% to make the jets uh, shoot further. And so that's the same principle we use in vascular is when it causes an increase in velocity, we know it's got to be at least 50%. And then we will we'll compare an area that we think is stenotic with one that's not, and we put it into ratios. If it doubles, you know, it's got to be around 50%. If it's triple or four times the original velocity, we know we tight stenosis, usually 80% or greater. And, and I think an important point here is, um, you know, to, to be careful that, uh, you know, we say this, they, we say this, right. As far as the diagnostic quality of this, you guys as uh, technologists are doing a lot of these measurements and determinations yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, this isn't just, you're just snapping a picture, sending it to somebody to read. You guys are actually catching a lot of this stuff and being able to uh, escalate or, um, you know, really impact how a patient is diagnosed and treated. Um, uh, outside of the academic centers where they torture the fellows, <laughs> Um, if you get outside of that setting, in most instances, the sonographers are not only doing all the imaging, they're filling out the reports in detail as far as ejection fraction, degree of stenosis, diastolic parameters. Um, and a, and a well-trained sonographer is worth their weight in gold, believe me, because they can detect things. Um, I joke around about this. I am not the world's smartest guy. I just made sure I hung out with a bunch of really smart people to teach me. And it's paid off later in my career because I still hang out with people a whole lot smarter than me. <laughs> but uh, the dynamic that we create amongst each other is in a true healthcare system, we're a team. And I think what I really enjoy most about even to this day is how I may see something and call the cardiologist and say, you know, I saw this, I'm not sure exactly, but I think this, tell me what you think. So we still bounce stuff off of each other. And sometimes they'll disagree. Sometimes a lot of times they'll agree. And then other times they'll go, wow, I wouldn't have noticed that if you hadn't pointed it out. So in a properly functioning lab, you really have two people looking at that exam, the person doing it, they're doing it and analyzing. And then the cardiologist does the same thing. Take us through, if you would, uh, quickly on um, three different areas that you look at cardiac, muscular. So, especially, you know, starting with cardiac, if we have uh, your call to a patient that is having some sort of acute cardiac event, whether that be um, a possible effusion um, or um, you know, low EF something, what are some of the things you put that probe on? What are you immediately looking for? Um, we we really keep clue in very quickly on the left ventricle. Um, mm. We get called a lot for stats um, on hypotensive patients, unexplained hypotension. And probably the two things that enter your mind very quickly would either be um, 
very poor EF. So we'll look at how well the walls are moving and whether the uh, overall function's okay. We also look at the pericardium very quickly too, because an effusion of, um, well, I shouldn't say of significant size because everybody's different, but a pericardial fusion can certainly cause hypotension. <clears throat> Those are probably the two things we look at the quickest is just looking at the pericardium and looking at the LV function. And of course, and then we just continue to explore on and on. You, you sort of develop an eye for certain things. You'll look real quick and, you know, gee, that, that, that aorta looks awfully big or that LV looks like it's not contracting well. RV looks big. That's another way. Look at the right ventricle. You know, historically for decades, we didn't care about the right ventricle. Um, we've started to care a lot. I guess it felt left out. But um, now we really care about right ventricular, particularly ECMO and all of the LVAD devices. You know, it doesn't help to fix a bad LV if you've got a bad RV to go with it. So now we're paying as much attention to that as we did anything. So outside the LV, it's mostly structural, what we see. Um, vascular. Most of the times we get stat exams, they're probably arterial in nature. Um, strokes generally go straight to a CT scanner. I'm more of a preventative measure in that. But um, I get it, you do get a fair amount of um, stat arterial exams. And a lot of times there, what we're looking for is acute um, embolus. So, you know, you can have people, and I'm always interested. The other thing too is, much like paramedics and probably everybody should be, right? You got to talk to your patient. Somebody that's had leg pain for six months doesn't interest me nearly as much as somebody who was fine until an hour ago and now they can't move their leg and they're rolling mm. off of the bed in pain because that's usually a classic sign of what we call acute thromboembolism in a limb. And I've seen that come from people with chronic AFib. Um, you get a bunch of other causes. Um, abdominal aortic aneurysms usually have thrombus inside of them that can break off and cause the same thing. So you learn to sort of explore stuff like that. And honestly, one of the things that I still very much enjoy about ultrasound is it really puts you in the driver's seat to think through a process, make a diagnosis, and prove your point. Um, that was one of the probably the thing that still attracts me to this day is I still get excited when I see something and I get that little smile like, <laughs> I know what that is. <laughs> so it's kind of cool to me. Um, abdominal exams, and this is interesting, ultrasound has specialties. Um, in the beginning, the, you know, people still call you ultrasound techs. Well, I can assure you, you do not want me to look at your gallbladder. Um, I had some abdominal pain once, looked at my gallbladder and thought it was fine. And 48 hours later, I was having an emergency cholecystectomy. <laughs> so that tells you about gallstones. That was it. <laughs> That's when I said, all right, so I know my limitations and I'm not a general ultrasound anymore. But um, mine has been strictly cardiovascular. Um, you know, cardiology or the echo have almost historically always gone to cardiologists. Um, the general ultrasound studies generally go to radiology, OBGYN, probably, you know, the um, OB studies go a lot to gynecologists and obstetricians, but also radiologists still interpret a fair amount of those as well. 
And vascular surge, vascular ultrasound has been all over the place. It was really kind of, um, I don't want to use the word invented, but brought forth by vascular surgeons. And of course, the radiologists jumped on board and cardiologists too, because we're all dealing with the same disease process and that's atherosclerosis. So those are the, the, the multiple specialty areas. And I am living proof. Do not have me do anything in general because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I recognize the liver though. I will give you that. Know what that is. But outside of that, I probably shouldn't touch it. Nice, nice. So, you know, that's the... We, we talked about the in-hospital component there pretty well. Now, I just want to tell you about a gentleman that, uh, that Jason and I are pretty good friends with. We've had him on the podcast before. Uh, he's an ED physician, Nick Johnson, and uh, he loves EMS, and he's obsessed with ultrasound. And I, uh, I asked him one day whenever we were in the lab uh, teaching some paramedic students, I said, hey, doc, do you think, do you think that we'll ever – be able to do ultrasound in the back of the truck. And he says, Hmm, hold on a second. He pulls out the ultra cause he was about to go to shift. He was on his way to shift when he stopped by the college, just to say, Hey, pulls out some ultrasound gel, pulls out, you know, the probe takes a quick ultrasound of his heart and then texted it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he said, does that answer your question? And I said, well, perhaps, I think Jason and I have had these conversations before. I think it would be a tremendous value and a tremendous tool for the paramedics and the emergency room physicians to get some of this information sent back to them in the field. Yeah. The things we said, you don't, you don't have to be an expert at um, diagnostic ultrasound to pick up certain things. I mean, pericardial effusions are obvious most mm. of the time. I mean, pleural effusions can get a little squirrely, but, you know, if you're dealing with trauma, you have to assume the guy that hit the steering wheel didn't do it because he had a pericardial effusion. He's probably got a hemopericardium. So there's a lot of things that you can pick up very quickly, I think. Um, and, you know, and let's face it, point-of-care ultrasound's grown in so many different directions. Critical care physicians use it a lot to cannulate vessels. Hmm. And I can remember nights on call when I'd be walking by uh, one of the ICU rooms at two o'clock in the morning and they'd be struggling to put an IJ in, right? And I'd stop and go, you want me to show you where that sucker is? And I turn <laughs> the machine on and point at it and they go, thank you. <laughs> so that was the initial stages of what they're doing today. They're all doing it. It's a great way to find a vessel you want to put a catheter in. Yeah. And in um, fact, uh, you're, you're going to find, um, you know, most interventional cardiologists, especially the ones that are coming out of training recently, um, other than a radial artery, they are using ultrasound for uh, all femoral access, arterial or venous, uh, definitely, uh, or most definitely all internal jugulars. Um, and the likes like you're, you're talking about. Um, but, you know, I just want to make sure that we, that we make a very clear point of uh, addressing, and, and, and I'd like for you to do this, Paul, and I think you probably already have, but just to make sure that we clearly state the difference in um, point of care ultrasound and true diagnostic quality, that this, you know, is this a diagnostic ultrasound? Are we able to make 
true treatment decisions or what really is the role, the best role of point of care ultrasound? I think it's to answer some pretty quick questions quickly. And look, no matter who is doing the ultrasound, we're not right all the time. All right. I mean, that's just something you have to accept in life. And anybody that says they are has been lying yeah. to themselves. Okay. Sometimes I th see things and I'm almost know what it is and I'm wrong. But I think of like, you like a gallbladder. Yeah. Yeah. Like my gallbladder, for instance. <laughs> there we go. And I'm supposed to have skill in this stuff. But, um, you know, there are certain things you can pick up fluid in the belly. I mean, yeah, tell us, tell us about that. Kind of go through that fast exam, because that is something that's pretty popular in emergency, well, very popular in emergency, in emergency medicine, and I think could probably play a decent role in the field. Uh, and obviously, it's been around for a while, but it's a great way to assess the abdomen. Um, it's really just placing a transducer in a couple different spots encompassing the abdomen from the xiphoid process to about the mid-abdominal cavity around the kidneys and then on down to the pelvis. Um, it's probably a whole lot less uh, painful than having peritoneal lavage. Yeah, I don't think we need a uh, trial for that one. No. But, um, you know, if you stop and think about it, what I said earlier is fluid presents a dark space. So if you have somebody with a distended belly and a trauma and you put the ultrasound picture or the transducer down and all you see is black area with some organs suspended in it, they're bleeding. As a matter of fact, blood coagulates quick enough sometimes it actually looks like smoke. And that's what we call it in the fluid because the sound waves can actually strike the blood cells and start acting as a reflector if it's not moving. So I think it's awesome for detecting quick things in trauma, such as whether there's a abdominal bleeding, um, your hypotensive patients, you can look for pericardial effusion. And where we used to not go that we're going now is looking at things like lungs and trachea, because they do create a, a reflection back. So you can get placement, you can tell when something does not didn't didn't come with you at birth, such as an endotracheal tube. It sticks out like a sore thumb. But um, where we wouldn't have gone before, we're going now. So I can see a tremendous value in placements of endotracheal tubes, quick assessments of abdomens for bleeding. Um, honestly, you can learn to look at a heart pretty quick and say, you know, if nothing else, that ventricle doesn't look like it's moving well. Right. <laughs> Wrong, those types of images sent okay to an ER will give an ER physician a whole lot to go by what he's what's coming into them. Hmm. So let me ask you real quick about go back to the um abdominal. Uh will ultrasound pick up a retroperitoneal bleed? Yes. That's a, wow, that's a good question. Is it a retroperitoneal view? Do you move it around the back or how do you? You can, yes. You can move it around. If you can peek through bone, it'll get through the muscle. If you can get into the cavity, it should very easily. As a matter of fact, I've gone fishing for a few retroperitoneal bleeds. Not oh, worse wow. in the hospital, but I've gone looking for them. Yeah, they do stand out. Okay, because I know that is something that is even difficult in the hospital setting because you're not going to get um, distension. You're, you know, you're not going to get hematomas. Um, 
because there's so much space there that it's able to bleed in. So that's interesting. So you, you started to talk about uh, the heart, you know, and move kind of the next stage here. So specifically, not just point of care, but specifically pre-hospital, you know, one of the issues that I think we run into with cardiac arrest is we call things PEA because we can't feel a pulse. Mm -hmm. We, you know, check the, check the radials, check the carotid carotids. We can't feel it. So we just call it PEA. And then probably all too often, because it's the way, not just we're taught, but it's our experience. People don't survive PEA, so they're dead. So just go through the motions, but tell us how can ultrasound change that uh, component? You could very quickly put the transducer over the chest, and if the heart is moving, you can tell that the chambers are actually filled with blood and contracting, so they clearly are ejecting something. They're just extremely hypotensive versus the opposite. When a heart is not moving, it'll go flat on you fairly quick, and you will not find anything moving. You may have a hard time even finding it. So mm -hmm. I tool. that's actually one of the things we get called for stats for in the hospital is um, during cardiac arrest is to go up and see what the LV is actually doing after 15 or 20 minutes of CPR. And it's, you know, if there's absolutely no movement whatsoever, they have a pretty good idea that that's probably going to have a bad outcome. But if there's still some contractile force there, it really gives them the impetus to keep trying. And then go back to something else you said um, about uh, if there's an object there that you weren't born with, like an ET tube. Um, <laughs> we, we have actually reviewed some uh, papers uh, where they took paramedics and they <clears throat> showed some about ultrasound. They sent some in blindly uh, just to see, could they determine if an endotracheal tube was in an esophagus or a trachea? Is that truly... Um, as uh, straightforward and easy as they seem to indicate? I would think so, because you could tell by um, depth, right? Whichever one comes first, the one that's closest to your transducer, mm. which should probably be your trachea with your esophagus behind. Um, the esophagus should, will have some air moving through it, so that would create some sort of cloud or vision to it. And the whole point about something you're not born with, right? They're, they're the strongest reflectors of all. We can tell <laughs> catheters, um, pacing catheters, even catheters that they use for um, cardiac catheterization. They're much stronger reflectors. So they stick out very um, pretty well. And something that I'm quite interested in, and I would love to hear your feedback um, a local trauma center in our area has been gathering data on the number of appropriate needle decompressions performed by EMS um, for tension pneumothoraces. And unfortunately, um, we're about 50-50. We're about 50% inappropriate uh, chest decompressions. And when I say that, I don't mean that they're missing the landmark. I say that they just shouldn't have been done. They weren't truly hypotensive. Um, so with that to say, how difficult is it to identify a pneumothorax uh, using ultrasound? Um, I wouldn't call it grade one simple, like a bad LV or a pericardial fusion, but a grade two, if you're used to looking at them, you'd have a pretty good idea what it looks like because you can image the lung. And I've seen a few of them, actually COVID brought a lot of that out, mm. lung imaging. Because again, we never thought about looking at a sac that's been our nemesis forever. 
but you know, people started looking at it and you can tell there's different densities to the lines, to the lining of the pleura. And when you see spaces in them, you actually know that you probably have tension pneumothorax. So I would think with some training that that would not be um, out of the question at all. So one of the um, stupid things that we have taught for decades and decades and decades and continue to, to teach is looking at the anatomical structure of the trachea and determining if it is midline or if it is shifted. And, um, you know, I think the, the information, the data is pretty clear that uh, the trachea is not going to move um, enough for us to see it anatomically. Could you potentially, so it's more on x-ray and that's really where it came from is being able to take a chest x-ray and seeing in the x-ray if the trachea is deviated. Um, could you potentially see the trachea or any of the main stem bronchi um, shifted at all with the tension pneumothorax? Um, I would, I'd hate to say no. I'm certain that's for, certainly drifting out of my specialty because I haven't done that much of it. If it shifts very little, I can see where it would be very difficult to determine. I mean, it almost bring you down to the point of finding landmarks and measuring. Yeah. Unless it's something really obvious. But um, where we're going to with point of care ultrasound is the other thing that is here and is not going to go away, and that's the use of artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, I've probably been driving Jason crazy with this the last couple of days because it was one of the things that we discussed pretty heavily in um, New York this past weekend. But I'm fascinated by what we're able to do. What I can foresee is perhaps in the field, paramedics being able to take images and send them off to a cloud and getting an answer back in, a, in less than a minute. Sweet. Because there are, for instance, what um, one of the companies that I've been speaking with a lot lately is they have developed algorithms for determining, it's not just measurements, they're actually disease-based algorithms. Like send me a picture of the left ventricle and I'll let you know if there's amyloidosis there. So it's a, it's either there or it's not. Wow. Um, heart failure with preserved EF is another algorithm. Um, something that I'm going to actually work with them on is uh, contrast perfusion studies. So yeah. we're, we're there. I can, I, mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make is maybe you're at a point or we will be at a point that you don't have to put all that pressure on you. If you don't know, send it off to the cloud and get an expert or at this point, a machine to tell you. Hmm. Great. And, and it's crazy that we wouldn't go down that road. I think I've said, I may have even said this before on this um, in, in this format or in this forum, but uh, fairly young, early career. We had just moved to Atlanta um, guy that was hitting on a, he was on his bicycle and he got hit. You know, I'm a new paramedic. I, I didn't, I thought I heard diminished breath sounds. I, he was, uh, he was pretty bad off and it, it things weren't going well. And so I, I brought him into the emergency department and I'm um, going through this conversation with the uh, ED physician and, and I'm kind of going through this. I can't really tell he's not breathing very deeply. I can't, you know, so I'm just going over and over pretty much saying, I don't know if this is a pneumothorax. I certainly don't know if this is a tension pneumothorax. So he takes out an IV cannula. He walks over to the patient and he just shoves it through his pleural space. Oh my gosh. And no air came out. And he said, Nope, not a pneumothorax. Are you kidding me? Like what a, 
<laughs> you know, okay, so uh, this is this is a good bit ago. Um, welcome but, to Georgia. Uh, <laughs> like why <laughs> we're, we're okay just to shove a needle in somebody for a diagnostic tool um yet uh you know now we can use something potentially mm. um immediate um no danger mm-hmm. uh you know why wouldn't we really go after something like this and you know and some of the some of the stuff that we're doing now you know within systems of care we're getting past this idea of well this is just information we're going to use in the pre-hospital setting like no it's like an ekg this is the this is the information that's going to follow this patient and treatment decisions are going to be made um, and a lot can happen within the 30 minutes that you're with a patient um, so i think this becomes uh even more important. Let, let me ask you real quick, though, Paul. Um, the fast exam. You, you said that seeing fluid, seeing blood, seeing the the what you call it, like the smoke if, in the coagulated mm-hmm. blood. Um, yes. So, a fast exam is that something that you think that uh, paramedics could be uh, educated on and do fairly competently? I think so. I think so. There are certain things, like I said, that are fairly easily uh, recognizable, and I think that would be one of them. Um, And you know we've talked about this before. We're going to have ultrasound machines in the back of trucks. I guarantee it. it. You know, if you look at it, and this is true, just look at it from a business perspective. Ultrasound, and I know probably more about echo than anything, Echocardiography is the only test that continues to grow in numbers on an annual basis. Um, We still do not, in most instances, have to get a pre-certification to get an echo, Um, where if you have a nuclear exam, obviously a cath or MRI, CT, outside of an, uh, um, an acute situation, we're the only test that you probably do not have to have pre authorization for. And it's mostly because we generate a ton of information. We're extremely safe. And as painful as it is to admit, we're pretty cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the grand scheme of things of how much how much everything costs, um, we're we're on the bottom end of the scale. So I think to that point, ultrasound's a wonderful tool. It's quick. Um, it's easy. It's a lot of information very quickly, a lot of valuable information. And I don't want to say it's easy to do, but there are certain things that it's easy to teach um, non-skilled sonographers to recognize. Well, and I do want to make a point that, as you have said, you have gone through years and years of education. You have decades of experience in this. And I do want to reiterate a point that this is something that after the paramedic and pre-hospital providers have been taught they have to retrain and retrain and retrain because mm-hmm. whereas a sonographer in the hospital is going to be using this, how many times per day, <laughs> how many times per day do you use your skills? Yeah. You know, a, a paramedic, eight or nine times a day. Right. A, a medic Plus. may use this once every eight or nine weeks. So similar to something like intubation, this is something that they will have to have to um, practice on. But the great thing is because it's non-invasive, you could literally do this on every single patient. On each other. You could sit yeah. in the day room. Hey man, pull your shirt up. <laughs> well, so this is what cardi this is what interventional cardiology did. You know, they know for difficult vascular access, it is really important to use ultrasound, but you certainly don't want to be using ultrasound for the first time in six months when you have difficult vascular access. So they end up using it for all vascular access, regardless of 
it is. But yeah, you can literally do this on every patient and see everyone's heart and lungs so that when you do come across something abnormal, it's a little bit uh, more noticeable. That's a good point. I think when, when you get out of routines, it's when you stop and think about it, why make it hard on yourself? And I mean, we know some amazing cardiologists can probably stick people blind, but they'll still use it because why, why would I make it any harder than I have to here? I can Absolutely. see yeah. And and to that to that point, Paul, what about um, you, you mentioned uh, critical care, you know, likely getting central lines, but just getting peripheral IVs. Is this a, a thing that could be used for that? Absolutely. We have, you know, when we start IVs in the echo lab, we cheat. How do you do that? A little system. No, it's it's actually great. Um <laughs> Trying to think, well, we were doing this not too long ago, but I was helping somebody find a basilic vein to stick an IV in. They're having a tough time. We put it on the screen. It's like, there it is. Oh, man. Watch the needle go in. Yeah. Puncture the vein. Can you come with me every time I got to get labs drawn? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big boy. It usually takes about three or four sticks. (laughs) Yeah. We'll make the make sure we have an ultrasound machine around the lab. We'll take care of you. There you go. There you go. So uh, this is one thing that's always um, not necessarily confused me, but it's definitely very interesting. If you don't mind, tell us about contrast. Um, why do we need it? What is it? How, what kind of types are there? You are talking about my favorite subject. <laughs> oh, sweet. Ultrasound contrast. This is kind of funny. We have tried to get away from the word contrast as much as we could because it's a lot of times linked to the iodinated contrast that they use in radiology and cath lab, which carries its share of risk for anaphylaxis. Mm. And by the way, we haven't been very successful in erasing the the C word from our (laughs) profession. We try to call them ultrasound enhancing agents. And I had a cardiologist over the weekend at this thing going, I know, but oh my God, that's a mouthful. Contrast is so much easier. (laughs) Good point, actually. But um, what they are, and they've really been around for 30 years, and they've gained more acceptance probably in the last 10 or 15, but they still have a long way to go. Um, It's encapsulating a gas inside of a bubble. Mm. Um, And so ultimately... um, there's uh, what we call perflutrin, which is octofluoropropane gas, and there's uh, um, sulfur hexfluoride. Um, two of the commercial agents use the perflutrin. One uses um, the sulfur hexfluoride. And the shell of the bubble is actually um, made out of a lipid. So, And the whole purpose of that is, is a lipid shell has a much stronger and a much more flexible um, capability. And the reason we do that is injected intravenously. And I really, I should probably qualify this. Saline is really a contrast agent, Hmm. but the bubbles are too big. So that's what we call a, you know, a venous um, contrast agent. When they reach the lungs in a normal human being, they never pass the blood gas barrier. They never show up on the left. Oh, gotcha. Contrast agents that we're using today are what we call transpulmonary agents. Mm. The bubble sizes are significantly smaller. 
and this is where you get nerdy, but a saline bubble is probably around 700 microns. The transpulmonary agents make bubbles less than one micron. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was guessing. And so they <laughs> right through. He's so full Point, of it, Paul. He's full 0. of it. 0.7 to 1.2 microns. Yeah. But wow. The, Ultimately, what that ends up being is, is they pass through the blood gas barrier, show up on the left side. And remember what I said in the beginning, ultrasound has a hard time with any type of air or gaseous medium. It becomes a reflector inside the chamber we're looking at. So it actually ends up having the opposite effect. We see tremendous detail because we can see everywhere blood goes, a bubble will go. Mm. So we're able to take people who are technically difficult to image and actually now see crystal clear um, subtle wall motion abnormalities like you might see with the uh, end stemmies or some ischemic events. Um, other things we use it for um, in acute MI, particular anterior MI where there's a much higher risk of developing left ventricular thrombus that shows up. Um, and I've seen, I have images of a very poorly functioning left ventricle that looks exactly like that, a poorly functioning left ventricle. You use the contrast agent and there's a giant thrombus hanging halfway down the ventricle. If I hadn't used contrast, I wouldn't have seen it. Wow. And I would guess so, the right ventricle as well. Yes. As a matter of fact, we had a pretty cool case a couple months ago where we saw that. It was a pulmonary embolism, and the sonographer happened to notice this big blob in the right ventricle. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but but um, even back up, since we're talking about that, tell about the patient's symptoms. Why was she called to that patient? Acute hypotension. She really? Was, Inpatient. It, it was an in interesting story. He was actually in the hospital <clears throat> for a couple of days. I think he was being treated for renal, um, renal disease, and he had been bedridden. And ultimately what happened is, is after being in bed for a couple of days, they got him up and sat him in a chair. And when they put him in the chair, he became acutely hypotensive. Mm. They called for a stat echo. She went and did this echo. She noticed that the right ventricle was big. And so, and this is, this is where I'm, I'm really proud of her thought process. You know, these things, for FDA approved strictly to opacify the left ventricle. So anything outside of that, and of course we don't care about FDA approval anyway, because you now it's just what companies go for. Well, I I've used this in the lecture, by the way, you know, epinephrine was never FDA approved for use in cardiac arrest. And it doesn't work, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, see, the FDA didn't get involved. <laughs> but um, Sorry, no, they didn't pay for that. They're paying for contrast agents. But um, she, she thought outside the box, said the RV is big and doesn't seem to move. She used contrast. She found a large um, area in the right ventricle that represented thrombus. She called the interventional cardiologist. And I'm not mistaken, that was our first. The interventional cardiologist took that patient to the cath lab. And um, on, upon arrival in the cath lab, I'm thinking the blood pressure was barely 80 over 60 tachycardic. She mm. did a pulmonary embolectomy and we have pictures of the clot she pulled out of the lungs. The guy left the cath lab with a blood pressure of a, like almost a textbook 120 over 80 symptom free. Was it a big saddle or for it to be poking down that far? I believe, well, 
it, I don't know that it was saddle, but he definitely had bilateral pulmonary emboli. I mean, wow. when angiogram, not much lit up in those lung fields. That's terrifying. <laughs> it, yeah, but just a great amazing. example. Yeah. Just, a, just a great example of how a uh, non-invasive, like that, that can be done quickly, can be done competently, and then escalated. Absolutely. Um, because there's somebody that knows uh, what they're doing. Yeah. So, Paul, can these, would you use one of these agents for um, a suspected VSD or ASD, or would you use something else? Oddly enough, for an ASD, the saline is a better contrast agent because we wouldn't expect to ever see any of those bubbles on the left side of the heart. So if we injected it and saw bubbles on the left, there's really only two ways it could have gotten there. It either passed through a pulmonary AVM or it went through the atrial septum. And so we actually time it. We watch the stuff flow in. If it shows up in the left ventricle on less than five beats, it had to come through the atrial septum. Hmm. It's a little longer. It could be pulmonary AVM. But in, in that sense, saline's actually the better contrast agent because we don't expect it to show up on the left side. And then what about a VSD? VSDs actually show up great with color Doppler. But I got to tell you about, you know, you never think you know everything. I had a sonographer come to me one time and said, I think I have a VSD. Okay, if I use contrast. And I went, probably don't have to. I don't see what purpose it would serve. <laughs> so she looked up to me and she said, but I already did. <laughs> I said, okay, so let's go take a look. And honestly, I never thought this before, but what a beautiful demonstration of the VSD. You could measure the size of it and follow it. So it's like, all right, so I just inserted foot and mouth. If it does, is it desperately needed for one? No, but it has tremendous value in determining size, location, mm. because they're not always straight holes across the septum. Right. Snake their way through. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the textbook does make them look like just straight across. Yeah unless you're in that lab setting, like you gentlemen have been, you're not going to know that. So. And if you something subtle like that may not have a murmur either, you may not be able to hear it. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, obviously some of these people, they were born with them and nobody's picked up on it. So finding it as an adult means that they've, they've been around for a while with it. Small VSDs generally will not cause that much trouble for people. Yeah. So let's move kind of more back to you. Um, I want, I'd like for you to kind of go through a little bit of your experience um, on the national level. Some, some of the stuff that you've been able to be involved with, uh, with ASE. Tell us how you got involved with that, um, what you're currently doing with it, um, and then some of the stuff that you've done over the years um, that have kind of changed things in uh, sonography. Well, I've, I've been a member of ASE for a long time. And, and what is ASE? I'm sorry, American Society of Echocardiography. Hmm. It's um, sort of a little offshoot of ACC, really. It's just the echo people that have oh. their own society. Nice. But um, I've been active in it for years. I've attended the national um, sessions for years. And I really have used that as a base to look at things and you know, just be able to look at stuff and say, yeah, that's impractical. I can't do that. Or, you know, strain echocardiography is one of them. I've been watching the data come out 
on well over 10 years. And initially I thought, yeah, okay. But as the data started coming out more and more of the value, uh, it was eight or nine years ago, we were in Gainesville still. I went out and said, all right, this stuff isn't gonna go away. Let's get started early. So we started doing strain. It's where my interest in contrast agents came. Mm-hmm. I've seen some things that they you do with contrast agents that did you ever see something that strikes you and wow, that makes perfect sense. Why don't we do that all the time? Well, that's what it was for me in contrast agents. So really what I've become very interested in and I lecture about nationally across the country is the use of um, ultrasound imaging agents, not contrast. (laughs) (laughs) Too many words. I've even got more fascinated with looking at perfusion because you, if you remember what I said in the beginning, a bubble will go anywhere the blood goes. And so when we see now, I pay more attention to whether the entire thickness of the wall actually has bubbles in it. Mm. Because if it doesn't have bubbles in it, there's some sort of obstruction to flow. So really what we're able to do with these things now is sort of a um, what I call bedside nuclear medicine. I can tell you if there's a perfusion deficit. Um, so I'm really interested. I'm reasonably sure I can determine end stemmies before the troponin spikes. Nice. Um, I know, obviously, a transmural infarct because the basics are this. An infarcted muscle is never going to take up any blood supply. So, for instance, if you brought a STEMI in and they took them to the cath lab and put a stent in, and they were one of those people that waited 18 hours of chest pain to call you, okay, they can put the stent in. But if I go do an echo the next morning and look at the perfusion and there's still no bubble concentration in that muscle, it's not coming back. Mm. But if I can see bubbles in there, it's a condition we call hibernating or stunned myocardium. Even though the wall isn't moving wet that well, we know that it has a blood supply, it will eventually come back. And you know, it really helps the interventional cardiologist determine whether they're gonna jump on a consult with the um, heart failure specialist or not. Because the stunned myocardium, you can probably hold off as they'll continue to improve, but they have a really bad EF with truly infarcted muscle. You may as well start now, it's not coming back. So that's really been my biggest fascination. Um, That's where I've been running around the country speaking about, I guess, is for for me, I don't, it's like, this is simple. Why do I have to even tell anybody this? But, you know, (laughs) just to put this in perspective, ultrasound enhancing agents have been around for 31 years. And yet out of an estimated 20 to 30% of all echoes being suboptimal, only 7% will ever see an imaging agent. It's still not widely accepted um, from cardiologists through sonographers on down. And to me, that's a head scratcher. I, I don't understand why you wouldn't use something that has such a valuable you know, outcome. On the use of agents with pre-hospital POCUS, when we're looking at those valves and everything, we're trying to see if we actually have wall motion. Do you see a role in those agents in the pre-hospital setting for that situation? Yes. One of the things that I really like about the ultrasound uh, contrast agents, 
I tell you what, if there's anybody in interventional cardiology on here, I'm probably going to get hit by a car in a parking lot tomorrow. <laughs> anti, Anti-iodinated contrast, but just mm. to put this in perspective, you know, the risk of anaphylaxis with an iodinated contrast agent is about one in every 500. The risk of anaphylaxis in an ultrasound imaging agent or ultrasound contrast is one in 10,000. Mm. Really a pretty innocuous thing to do to, to somebody. And if it works, that's great. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. It's not really going to do a whole lot. But it's extremely valuable when you can actually detect something like that. I mean, that's what we're that's what we're using them for. I don't see every wall motion abnormality. And one of the other things you learn to train your eye for is wall thickening. Okay, the so wall motion abnormality. If the wall doesn't adequately thicken, it is an ischemic blood. I mean, it's an ischemic muscle. So you can pick up subtleties in there. And there are wall motion abnormalities that we do not see on very good looking echoes on a daily basis. And as soon as you put this stuff in, you're like, wow, I didn't know that. So what is the future? You mentioned uh, artificial intelligence. Um, does, the, does quality get better? Does diagnostic um, determinations get better? Does prognostication get better? What, what's the future here for... Um, kind of ultrasound and echocardiography in general? Um, obviously, the image quality will continue. And I think as we have, I, you know, I'm old enough to tell you this. When I worked in the cath lab, we didn't, other than the early thrombolytics, right? We didn't take anybody in there to treat them. We took them in there, shot pictures and went, wow, that's why they had an MI and then sent them off to a surgeon. Um. Over the years, if uh, look at it now, a cardiac catheterization is really a therapeutic lab. Mm. We're opening, you know, we're opening um, blood vessels. We're replacing valves that way. We're clipping valves closed that leak. So, the primary purpose of going to the cath lab is confirming diagnostics, right, and clearly making treatment. Ultrasound has become a very valuable tool to feeding that. So I think our diagnostic capabilities get better. And there are some procedures that people will do ultrasound guided. Um, pericardial synthesis, most cardiologists feel much more comfortable. They can do it without, but they're a lot more comfortable with ultrasound guidance as they withdraw and seeing their catheter go in. So we've sort of switched over that way. And there's really room for therapeutics and ultrasound. Um, so the future isn't, I believe, um, ultrasound will be involved in uh, therapeutics. There is a procedure called sonothrombolysis, um, which really you guys are going to have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Tom Porter, who is not only a gentleman and a scholar, he is one of the world's recognized experts in um, sonothrombolysis, and I wouldn't want to steal his thunder. <laughs> and and I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that, um, Paul, because uh, yeah, this is something that um, I think people are going to be excited to hear about uh, coming up uh, very soon. Really, probably in we're, we're going to talk to Doctor Porter about this. This is something that could actually be an absolute game changer. Um, but really uh, has to be done sooner rather than later. And so if we can 
perfect or if we can make ultrasound something common in the back of an ambulance, this is potentially something that we can take to the next step, but we have to really know what we're doing uh, and be competent. So Paul, thank you. This has been fascinating. Um, you know, we, we have, we have learned so much. Um, I know this has kind of been a whirlwind, but you really just put that together um, so clearly and I think uh, it really gives us a lot to think about of what the future is for EMS, where we can kind of head and how we can continue to be part of this system that we're not just making destination decisions or treatment to back of an ambulance, but this is actually something that becomes part of that medic, not, not just the medical record, but the course of treatment in the emergency department um, and into some of the specialties. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a, it was a pleasure. Anytime. Absolutely. Hope you come back. Thank you. Anytime. And even though you're a Steelers fan, we'll still find a place for you. <laughs> hey, look, at least I'm a Gator fan too. Okay. <laughs> we may have to edit that out. <laughs> You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.